There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin tonight with a breaking news split screen. As the Israel-Hamas war is escalating in Washington, major political drama is unfolding on Capitol Hill during a moment of international crisis. The House remains speakerless as the Republican majority is still unable to garner enough support for their nominee. It is a whole mess, and we'll have more on that later in the show. But we begin tonight in Israel, where earlier today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced that he is forming an emergency unity government in the wake of the Hamas attack, adding two opposition leaders to his cabinet. In a news briefing, Netanyahu said the newly formed government would, quote, crush Hamas. It comes as the nation has intensified its retaliation against Hamas, relentlessly bombarding Gaza with missiles throughout the day, leaving the streets unrecognizable, entire neighborhoods destroyed. And tonight, all of Gaza is completely in the dark. The fuel to the power station ran out after being cut off by Israel, leaving the people of Gaza with no electricity and no running water. On top of that, the humanitarian situation there is being described as catastrophic. More than 260,000 people have now been displaced. Authorities are pleading for help. And hospitals are overwhelmed, filled, filled with the cries of children. Meanwhile, Hamas militants have been firing rockets at Israel into the night. While on the border, the scale and brutality of, the weekends, of this weekend's attacks are still being uncovered. One Israeli soldier describing the horrific scene inside a kibbutz that was ambushed by Hamas militants. It's not a war. It's not a battlefield. You see the babies, the mother, the fathers in their bedrooms, in their protection rooms, and how the terrorists kill them. It's not a war. It's not a battlefield. It's a massacre. It's a terror act activity. The human toll of this war has been catastrophic. At least 1,200 Israelis have been killed, and in Gaza, at least 1,100 people have been killed. Between 100 and 150 people are estimated to have been taken hostage by Hamas, something President Biden addressed today when speaking at a roundtable with Jewish community leaders. We want to make it real clear, we're working on every aspect of the hostage crisis in Israel, including deploying experts to advise and assist with recovery efforts. Now, the press is going to shout to me, and many of you are, that, you know, what are you doing to bring these, get these folks home? If I told you, I wouldn't be able to get them home. Folks, there's a lot we're doing, a lot we're doing. I have not given up hope on bringing these folks home. This all comes amidst growing signs that a ground invasion may be imminent as Israeli forces gather near the border, as NBC's Richard Engel points out. Israel has brought in enough tanks and armor for a full-scale ground war and is now mobilizing the more than 360,000 reservists called up for national service. A new phase of this conflict is about to begin, and there'll be many casualties. For Israeli troops, the risks are high. 
Hamas planned for Saturday's murderous rampage into Israel for a year. Its gunmen showing a level of training and savagery that shocked Israel and the world. New footage shows Hamas gunmen paragliding into that music festival on Saturday morning. Hamas is also prepared for Israel's ground invasion and says it welcomes it. Hamas has a network of tunnels and booby traps and knows the ground far better than Israel. For the two million civilians in Gaza, the risks are even higher. Gaza is one of the most densely populated areas on Earth. Street-to-street -street fighting could kill thousands. Richard Engel joins me now from Ashdod, Israel. And so let, let's start at that last point uh, that you were making, Richard, and thanks for, for joining us. Uh, a ground invasion, where would it come from and how would it even work in that tiny strip of land um, that we know that Gaza is? And we can throw up the map if we can, but please, please explain even where would it come from? Well, if you pull up a map, it's quite easy uh, where it would come from uh, because it would come from everywhere. Uh, it would come from all sides. Uh, Israel would move in uh, from from all sides, and, and I think that's that's not a secret. I'm not revealing any any plans. I, I don't have inside knowledge, but. Israeli troops are deployed all around Gaza, and uh, they would they would try and overwhelm it. Uh, there would be attacks from the sea. There would be attacks from the air. There would be drone attacks. There would be attempts to uh, block out communications uh, with, uh, with with jamming equipment. So it would be a, a, a full scale invasion. Uh, Israel has done this before. They have gone into the Gaza Strip, uh, but usually when they've gone in, they've they've just stayed in the north, uh, or they've tried to cut the region in half. The actual tactical uh, operations will will be revealed uh, if they if they do this. But but generally, they push in from multiple sides. They cut the roads. Uh, they cut the, uh, the the north from the south. They use a lot of drones and a lot of jamming, uh, and it is highly destructive. I was in Gaza during a, a previous ground ground assault, and there was one area, Hail Tufa, it's called. It was more or less leveled to the ground. And it was it was it became a, a parking lot. There was no way that anyone could could survive in that area. So it is it is highly destructive. You can't move tanks uh, into a, a built up area and start firing them without causing a lot of destruction. This is not a pinpoint operation. But in addition to the the blunt move in with the tanks and the armored bulldozers, there will also be. Uh, because of all the hostage situation, commando raids, because they are going to be looking for the hostages. So this will be a, a highly complex operation, very difficult to, to carry out for Israel, very dangerous for Israel uh, and, for, and for the troops involved, and, 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 and potentially extremely lethal for all of the Palestinians uh, who are there. And Hamas is saying, we welcome it. Bring it on. Uh, we want to fight on our own territory. We know the territory uh, better than than anyone else. And Hamas is feeling very confident after this weekend's uh, assaults in, into Israel that have uh, raised the group's reputation uh, across the Arab world, at least. And, and now we will see uh, what happens if, if Israeli troops do go in. Uh, I, it, 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 it will make the, this early phase of the conflict 
uh, pale in comparison. And, and thank you for explaining that, because, you know, and, I, and we can put the map back up, because th- this is the question. If if there is an assault from the sea, from the north of Gaza, and Gaza is tiny, so, I mean, <clears> we're, we're blowing it up, you know, to try to make it, to make you see what it is, but it's really small. Um, there is only one way out for the two million civilians, and that is to go south, to go to Egypt, which is, as you can see, is south of the Gaza Strip. Um, Egypt has been talking about trying to get aid in, um, trying to get U.N aid in. The U.N. has talked about it as well. But Egypt has rejected any move to set up safe corridors inside of Egypt for people who are trying to flee south. Uh, What is the status of that southern crossing? Because if Egypt closes it, that means that this catastrophic assault that you're describing takes place in a place where everyone in Gaza is trapped there. So that that is generally the dynamic that happens. Uh, The the assault comes uh one of the there are two main cities in, in gaza there's uh there's gaza city in the north and, and han yunis uh, in, in the south there are other smaller communities but two major urban centers so one of the first things that israel has done in the past is cut it off from the north to the south to prevent movement uh from from one area to the other and prevent hamas from resupplying and, and communicating and, and gathering in force and the other thing that happens is people rush toward the border with Egypt. Egypt traditionally has not wanted to open that border because it doesn't want all of the two million Gazans to end up on Egyptian territory because they might never leave and they might become new Egyptians and and, and the Gaza Strip could empty out. So negotiations uh, and discussions are already underway and appeals are already underway to open some sort of humanitarian corridor into Gaza to get supplies in, to allow medical relief in, to give the people some sort of uh, of, mm-hmm. of a way to to survive, to give the uh, civilians a way to survive, uh, but but so far that that corridor hasn't been opened, and it's unclear if it will. Richard Engel, thank you very much. We really appreciate your uh, eyes and your knowledge uh, on this. Thank you. Uh, let me bring in MSNBC political contributor Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor in the Obama administration. Hopefully you were able to hear Richard, Ben, um, because what we're talking about is potentially a major ground assault um, inside of a very small, packed densely packed area where no one can leave. Um, so this could be difficult. And then an attempt to also locate hostages, uh, up to 150 people who only Hamas knows where they are. From a national security point of view, are there, what, what are the risks here? Um, you know, because the, the, uh, the idea I'm assuming is to not have this spark a larger war. But inside of, you know, the countries that are around the region, they're going to see whatever the aftermath of that assault is. And God only knows what happens next. That's right, Joy. I mean, there's so many risks involved here. Um, I mean, first of all, there are obviously risks to Israeli ground forces moving into a densely populated area where Hamas may have prepared uh, to ambush uh, troops coming in. There's obviously catastrophic risks for the civilians, and we should think about the innocent Gazans who are trapped and have no way out uh, and uh, will be in the crossfire of this assault and already are um, in in the crosshairs of uh, the bombardment of Gaza. Uh, But then beyond that, Joy, as you point out, there are risks that if the images coming out of Gaza are horrific uh, of a humanitarian catastrophe, there are risks that that might prompt Hezbollah to enter the conflict from the north 
Uh, Hezbollah has actually said that a ground invasion might might bring them into this war. And so then all of a sudden you have another front in this, a major Iranian proxy and a more capable organization than Hamas and Hezbollah with rockets and with manpower potentially coming in and escalating this conflict from the north. And uh, if the images, uh, again, are obviously going to be triggering, you could see uprisings in the West Bank. We've already seen um, some settlers, Israeli settlers, attack Palestinians in retribution for the horrific attacks by Hamas. You could see Palestinian attacks. Uh, And suddenly you could be looking at a a multiple front war uh, in the West Bank uh, from Lebanon uh, and as well in Gaza. So there are a lot of risks associated with that kind of escalation, human risks and security risks. Absolutely. And I will just note that Reuters is reporting that Iran's president and the Saudi crown prince um, have spoken for the first time um, since diplomatic ties are restored. And the Iranian president, Raisi, and the Saudi crown prince um, discussed the need to, quote, end war crimes against Palestine. So they're, they're, they're not making noises that sound like they're very much supportive of what Israel is planning to do. Let me play uh, President Biden and what he had to say. Uh, and he has known Bibi Netanyahu for a long time, and he reiterates that. Take a listen. I've known Bibi for over 40 years. In a very frank relationship. I know him well. And the one thing that I did say that... It is really important that Israel, with all the anger, frustration, and just cannot explain it, that exists, is that they operate by the rules of war. The rules of war. And there are rules of war. Netanyahu has a new government. Uh, What do you think that means for the way that they might conduct any operations going forward? presumably the new government includes some slightly more moderate voices. Slightly. I mean, I think what it means, Joy, is you've had a really unstable situation in some respects in Israel uh, over the course of the last several months because you have the most far-right government uh, in Israel's history, and that's sparked protest movements in response to an attempted effort to to seize kind of judicial power uh, in Israel. That's created tensions in the society. So I think above all, it kind of signals a greater degree of unity. Um, But make no mistake, I mean, even the people coming into the government are pretty hard line uh, when it comes to not just this attack, but even previous Gaza wars. Uh, I think the warning that you're hearing from President Biden is he wants to be very respectful, understanding the enormous emotions and anger uh, that exist in Israel right now and the desire to destroy, really, the military wing of Hamas that carried out this attack. At the same time, there's both that security concern of this this war could escalate. It could get worse, right? It's the Middle East. Um, this could, could go into a regional conflagration in ways that could be very dangerous for Israel. Uh, and also, um, it is a reality. You heard him mention repeatedly the laws of war. What he's kind of alluding to there uh, is collective punishment, essentially punishing the citizens of Gaza for what Hamas did, that is not permitted under the rules of war. Uh, targeting Hamas, taking out its military wing, that's obviously a military objective that Israel legitimately has right now. Um, but this is difficult in a city of two million people. Uh, and so I think President Biden is trying to, at the same time, signal support and understanding for how Israelis are feeling, but counseling as a friend uh, and as a human being that has concerns and empathy for those innocent Palestinian families. And keep in mind, one million of Gaza's two million people are children. Um, you know, counseling that uh, you should do this uh, consistent with the laws of war. And that 
that does not mean collective punishment. That means yeah. going after Hamas. Uh, let, let's talk about Netanyahu's politics for just a moment. Let me play real quick. This is a kibbutz resident um, who is expressing some very understandable anger. This person's name is Shani Teshuva, uh, who's a resident of kibbutz Zikim. Biden had this wonderful speech and said, Israel, we're behind you. We're your friends. We're, we're with you. And I wish our prime minister... <laughs> who no one knows why why he's still the prime minister would say even a quarter of the friendship of the love of of whatever we got from our american colleagues and friends and and i have another, i'm just going to put this video here because this video is actually um it's it's not in english so and this person's name is Sherelle Hogeg whose family was injured at Kavar Aza and his sister was burned and he's speaking at a hospital in Tel Aviv and just really really angry and saying uh, and we and thank you to for, for the translation that that thousands of people were killed during your shift sir you can tell stories till tomorrow all you want and where are you Mr. Ben Gavir um, who is uh, another minister in the cabinet uh, you're a world champion in telling stories where are you Mr. Pistol of Twitter uh, there's a lot of anger i think just in general um, inside, obviously, for obvious reasons. Some of that is being directed uh, at the prime minister himself. And you saw what Haaretz said, that they're, 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 they're pointing a finger at him. What, how do his politics potentially look going forward? Uh, very complicated, Joy. And, and frankly, there's a much more open discussion about this in Israel, even than the United States at times. The reality is there are a lot of questions to be answered. First of all, the reason that there was less Israeli military presence uh, along that Gaza border is because a lot of those military units were up in the West Bank because this uh, government had empowered Israeli settlers who were getting into tit-for-tat violence with Palestinians, uh, and they had to move military resources up there to protect them. Um, there was obviously an intelligence failure not seeing this coming. Uh, there have been reports of warnings that were made to the Netanyahu government that were ignored. And his own military did warn even publicly that the judicial coup that he was attempting was creating divisions in Israeli society that groups might try to exploit. Um, and so there are a lot of questions he has to answer. And his reputation has been, I'm Mr. Security, I will protect you. That's clearly been punctured. However, in the immediate term, Israelis are rallying together, as they do. It's in their DNA to rally together in defense of the state of Israel. So I think in the immediate term, Prime Minister Netanyahu is secure in his position uh, as this war gets underway. But usually in the, in the past, in Israel's history, in 1973, uh, with uh, the invasion of uh, Israel at that point, uh, at some point, uh, the bill comes due. And I think uh, for Netanyahu, he's in a more precarious political position, even as in the, I think, immediate term, he's going to lead this government of national unity. People are going to continue to have these questions of why Israelis were so vulnerable in the South and whether the nature of the government he put together and the policies he was pursuing uh, somewhat took the eye off the ball uh, down South. That's, I think, a medium and long-term question in Israeli politics. Ben Rose, thank you, always, uh, as always, for your expertise. Thanks so much. Thanks. Cheers. And coming up, much more of our breaking news coverage of the Israel-Hamas war, plus the latest on the continued chaos on Capitol Hill, with House Republicans still fighting amongst themselves and still speakerless tonight amid this foreign policy crisis. Stay with us. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. 
The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The House of Representatives is still effectively out of business since Republicans decided to kick out Speaker Kevin McCarthy with no plan to replace him. With the escalating Israel-Hamas war now into a fifth day, Republicans say they want to support Israel, if only they could move anything through their speakerless house. Leaving the chaos caucus scrambling to get in line behind a candidate, any candidate, as crises pile up. Reminder, we are also just 37 days away from government shutdown crisis number two. Republicans got a tiny bit closer to selecting a new speaker today. They're choosing between current House Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan. That would be Steve Scalise, who once told a reporter he was like his fellow Louisiana and David Duke, but without the baggage. And Jim Jordan, whose sexual assault victims alleged turned a blind eye to abuse as their wrestling coach at Ohio's at, uh, by, by their Ohio State wrestling coach. And he they say that he has no business being speaker. That was, of course, long before Jordan ignored congressional subpoenas and asked Donald Trump for a pardon. Both Scalise and Jordan voted against certifying President Biden's victory in 2020. But the louder of the two insurrectionists, Jordan, is Donald Trump's pick for speaker, as, by the way, Kev McCarthy once was. During a private forum on Tuesday, both Scalise and Jordan refused to answer a direct question from normie conservative Colorado Congressman Ken Buck about whether President Biden was duly elected in 2020, an answer that he said is required to get him off the fence. In a closed-door vote today, House Republicans voted 113 to 99 to nominate David Duke without the baggage over Trump's MAGA pardon friend. But 113 is a long way from the 217 votes needed to get elected speaker on the House floor. So in the meantime, the House will remain speakerless and in recess because the Chaos Caucus will not bring up a nominee who doesn't have the votes. And it's unclear when a floor vote for speaker will actually happen. Joining me now is NBC News senior Capitol Hill correspondent Garrett Hake. So, Garrett, what is the status of the negotiations to get someone closer to 217? Well, Joy, there won't be a speaker tonight. The House is just recessed until noon tomorrow. Steve Scalise is still in the building. I'm seeing some reporters down the hall uh, still waiting outside the speaker's office that either he or Kevin McCarthy or Patrick McHenry have been kind of cycling in and out of uh, for the last week, trying to figure out how to get him a little bit closer to that 217 number. Now, Scalise is probably in the neighborhood of around 200 Republican votes. Uh, Jim Jordan has said he is backing him, will nominate him on the floor. Uh, he's urged his followers to support him. Uh, so a lot of votes will come with that. But there are, there are House Republicans who are all over the map here with different issues with Scalise. Some see him as too much of the status quo. Some don't like that he doesn't appear to have a plan uh, on averting the shutdown in a way that it makes House conservatives happy. Some, uh, Nancy Mace by name, upset about the David Duke uh, comment from years past saying she could not support him and explain that vote to her voters back in South Carolina. So he's got a difficult problem here. I don't know that it's an intractable 
single one. But the longer this stays unsolved and not on the floor, one House Republican expressed to me, the more likely it is that more people will come up with more complaints and more things to ask him for, which just makes this more complicated and more likely to drag out even longer, Joy. Uh, what a mess. Uh, NBC's Garrett Hake. Thank you very much. Let's bring in, cheers, MSNBC political analyst David Jolly, a former Republican congressman from Florida who's, for whatever reason, no longer affiliated with the party. I cannot, cannot come up with why. Okay, I'm not a math, uh, I was not a math major. I was uh, visual environmental studies. So I will just put, put, but I I did a little quickie math. And if uh, Scalise were to be able to get all of Jim Jordan's 99, that would put him at 212, which would leave him five short of 217, if my math is is on point. What to do? Because if they can't bring over some of the maybes or some of those who will not vote for any reason for Scalise, they're going to have to go to Democrats, right? Like, isn't that the only way out? Yeah, which they will be unwilling to do. I mean, this is deja vu all over again, Joy. We saw it in January with Kevin McCarthy's 15 votes. We saw it a couple of weeks ago when they deposed of, of Kevin McCarthy. And so now you have Steve Scalise trying to get to the magic number and he appears to come up short. The one thing that that I am looking for is not actually the grand standards, if you will, the Nancy Mason over because actually have fairly weak binds. Like they would probably cave and end up voting for Scalise on a second, third, fourth ballot. I'm more intrigued by the Thomas Massey who says, hey, Scalise doesn't have a plan for the budget or the CR or Ken Buck who says Scalise won't answer if the election was stolen or not in 2020. Those are new players in this mix. And because you're only talking about three or four votes that could sink Scalise, those people now who were not part of the previous cycles of withholding votes from McCarthy, those members now come into play. Let me play Ken Buck, uh, because I thought he was very interesting. He was on on MSNBC earlier today uh, with Katie Turk. Take a listen. I have three issues that I want to know about. I asked last night, uh, will you unequivocally and publicly state that the election, the 2020 presidential election was not stolen? Um, He didn't answer that question very clearly, and Jim Jordan didn't answer that question very clearly. The second issue I have is, uh, what is the spending number uh, that that we're all going to agree on? It doesn't have to be my number, but I think if we're going to go and and move forward with with appropriations bills, we need to know what that number is. And the third question I had is, will you put Ukraine funding on the floor? Oh my God, like a Republican from like the 90s. I'm like, I feel like I'm back in the 90s. He's so normal. I'm like, bring that kind of guy back. Um, but, so that's him, right? He sounds totally normal. I probably don't agree with his politics, but he sounds like a normal human being. But he's up against this. Can I put this up? Nancy Mace, she came in wearing a scarlet letter shirt. That's not serious. And then you have this woman named Harriet Hageman, who, by the way, is who replaced Liz Cheney in Wyoming. She walked in carrying a lasso. The, the, the incentives, the political incentives, David, are for that kind of shenanigans, not for the norminess Ken Buck showed. How do they solve this problem when the people carrying the lasso are probably the deciders? That's right, Joy. The one thing I'll tell you Republicans are good at are publicly punching themselves in the face. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they're going to take all of this nonsense onto the House floor again after the nation went through seeing this before. Is crazy, which then goes to why the members like Buck and Massey and others really come into play. Yes. We know the craziness of Nancy Mace and others, right? But now consider they're going to, Scalise will be short on votes over issues like Ukraine, Israel, budget, the stolen election, actually issues that hurt Republicans to yes. be highlighted. And so this is where there is a coming disaster that they could have avoided. 
It could have required 217 votes behind closed doors before they ever went to the House floor. They didn't. And the sad part here, it is almost seems insignificant, the palace intrigue on the Hill, when we're seeing what's playing out yes. in the Middle East and Israel. Now we have a nation here domestically with a dysfunctional Congress, with ambassadors who haven't filled positions and military leadership being withheld because Republicans keep punching themselves in the face publicly and can't get their act together. It, it is remarkable because, right, it seems silly until you remember that we can't fund the government without a speaker, that we actually can't right. move spending bills to the floor without a speaker and we can't finalize the work of government without this position. How in the world did uh, these guys, th this gang of eight, throw out the speaker without a plan. They didn't have a plan for who would replace him. They were just like, get out, get out, Kevin. And they didn't have yeah. a backup plan. To me, that, you know, people who want to high five, you know, Florida man for doing this, I don't think they understand that he didn't actually have a plan. What if, okay, this is my nightmare, David. What if Kevin McCarthy is actually the only Republican who can be elected speaker? <laughs> Well, here, here's the silver lining, Joy. The silver lining is a, a dysfunctional Republican Party that can't get its act together, that doesn't know how to do their job, is actually probably better for democracy, broadly speaking. But in moments of crisis, a yeah. house that cannot organize and function is where we're really hurting democracy. And that's where it's right to be angry at Republicans. We don't know what we're facing in the Middle East. This is not going to be short. This is going to be long with very grave decisions to make for the interests of the West. Similar to Russia and Ukraine, which Republicans seem to abandoning our workers and freedom there as well. We have to keep a government open so that domestic programs that lift people out of poverty, provide for education, health care, and other ways of life, that those can be funded. And yet Republicans cannot do that. They are dysfunctional. They cannot govern. It's why they should be a minority party for decades to come. This is why this man left the party, because he makes too much sense to hang out with these with these people. <laughs> David Jolly. Well, if, if you come back in, a lot more people would join. That's all I'm saying. Hey, we, we I would come in as a Democrat, Joy. Come on. Not as a they, I'm sure they would be very happy to have you because you make sense. David Jolly, stop making sense. Thank you very much. Uh, coming up next, more on the Israel-Hamas war uh, when we come back after this short break. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Many of us recall the damaging consequences of the Iraq war. We remember the U.S. launching a major military invasion, starting with shock and awe in Baghdad and pulling off regime change against Saddam Hussein. The result, however, was irreparable harm to the United States' international standing. 
Israel is on the verge of an invasion of Gaza with questions about the ultimate goals and potential consequences. As Colin Powell famously said about Iraq, you break it, you own it. Does the same hold true for Israel when it comes to Gaza? Joining me now is retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Stavridis, who served as NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, during which time he had extensive interactions with Israeli officials. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, it's always uh, a pleasure to speak with you. So let's talk about it. That is the Colin Powell rule. You break it, you bought it. Uh, Israel formally removed its settlers and its troops from Gaza back in 2005. Um, what happens if they go back in, in your view? I think Colin Powell's rule, someone who is a, a life mentor to me, still exists in the sense that if Israel goes in, breaks it, and owns all of Gaza, two million people, Joy, they are going to own it. So as a result, I think what you're going to see the Israelis do is go in, do as much as they can to break the control of Hamas, the awful terrorists who have been beheading babies, raping women, Islamic State level offenses. They'll do everything they can to break that, but then they'll want to turn over governance in this region. Again, two million people, not insignificant, um, perhaps to the Palestinian Authority, perhaps to some kind of pan-Arab peacekeeping force, perhaps to a United Nations peacekeeping force, becomes very unclear very quickly. I'll close with this, Joy. It's a lot easier to get into a war than to get out of it. And David Hardin, who's a former senior advisor to President Obama and special envoy uh, for Middle East peace, um, the never-ending quest for Middle East peace, he wrote a piece in The New York Times um, where he said Israel could be walking into a trap in Gaza. Hamas may well have set a trap if it induces an Israel invasion of Gaza. Before Israel makes that call, it needs to have a strategy for exiting Gaza and a plan for the day after. An Israeli miscalculation in Gaza could trigger a crisis in the Middle East that lasts for generations. And I, I know you know better than most about what those kind of quagmires can look like. I mean, we went into Iraq and we successfully took Baghdad, but that didn't mean we could hold Iraq. Um, we went into Afghanistan and, you know, held on to it. We owned it for 20 years and still ended up having to leave. And it's back in the hands um, of the people that we took it from. So, you know, you go into a tiny strip like this that's already dense, that's already impoverished, where people are already desperate, kill a lot of people. Does that break the hold of Hamas on that population or strengthen it? Because we know there have been a lot of opposition to Hamas in Gaza uh, before now, because they are extremists, even against their own people. What happens internally? Um, can you then turn it over to somebody like Fatah? Yeah, and I can answer that in three words. I don't know. Yeah. And nobody does. You know, there's a lot of arrogance and confidence in predictions. I am not in that camp, but I'll give you a best case guess at this point. I think the Israelis will go in fully cognizant of what you are articulating, what David has said in an excellent piece in the New York Times, what I am saying here tonight. They will go in and recognize it is not in the long-term interest of Israel to impose governance over two million people in this tiny area. So I think they will look, as you just said, for a connection with the West Bank, 
with a connection with the Palestinian Authority. That'll require accommodations by Israel in working with the broader Palestinians. What I do know is this, Joy, the Israelis cannot work with Hamas after the rapes, the beheadings of babies, the torture, the hostages. They are terrorists. They must be pushed aside. When we get beyond that, we can get to the kind of conversation that you and I are having now. And I just want to note that, um, you know, this has been one of the challenges is that we do not have confirmation of a lot of things. The beheading story is one of those that we have not been able to confirm as a news organization, though it is one of the most sort of, uh, you know, caustic things that people believe happened there. And so we, we can't confirm that as a news organization. I just I, I need to say that. Um, the last question I would ask here is just as a broader question, because this seems to me and you kind of alluded to it in your first answer. Israel is going to need the region support. Egypt is right now saying they don't want to open up humanitarian corridors inside of yeah. Egypt, even though they're contiguous to Gaza. Um, how does Israel engage the Jordanians how do they engage the Egyptians and the Saudis when what they're saying right now isn't—they're not saying what the U.S. is saying about supporting, despite the the horrors that were that Hamas has done. That's not where they are right now. How does how how can the Israeli government engage those governments at the same time that it is doing this assault on Gaza? No, I'd I'd go back to. Syria and the civil war in Syria. 21 million people in Syria when that civil war begins. 7 million internally displaced. 7 million pushed outside the borders of Syria. What happened? Um, Turkey, Lebanon, um, others in the region, including Jordan, opened refugee camps. I think the reality is such that as Israel presses in, I think there'll be real pressure on Egypt and Jordan, who are partners with Israel, recognize them diplomatically, to work with them. Again, key word here, pan-Arab. Let's watch for what Saudis do. Is there funding? I think in the end, Joy, it's going to be a solution on the Egyptian side of this, Mm -hmm. recognizing they're pushing back right now. I think there is an inevitability to support from Egypt on this. Admiral James Tavridis, it is always so great to talk with you. You're so knowledgeable. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Thank you. And we'll be right back. A spokesman for Gaza's power distribution company confirmed to NBC News today that Gaza's only power station has run out of fuel. In response to the deadly attacks by Hamas, Israel announced that its blockage on the Gaza Strip would become a, quote, full-scale siege, allowing no food, no water, no electricity to millions of residents, half of them children. Dr. Ghassan Abu Sita, who has worked in numerous conflict zones, had this to say from the overwhelmed Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza today. The ferocity of this attack, and you always have to keep reminding yourself it's only been four days, that kind of leveling of whole neighborhoods uh, uh, has just been horrendous. I've been here for, in the 2009, 2014, and 2021 wars, and there were nothing like this. Even the 2014 war was not as bad as this, and that was a, quite a, 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 an intense war. 
Joining me now is Rashid Khalidi, professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University and author of The Hundred Years War on Palestine. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Khalidi. Um, I want to start and just let's talk a little bit about Gaza because about the government in Gaza, because Hamas is both the there's a terrorist group that is its sort of military wing. And then it's also the government. It's a weird thing where they're also the government in Gaza. Um, the fact that they would do what a lot of people have called a suicidal attack on on Israeli civilians, which they must have known would provoke this kind of hell for their own citizens, their own people. What do you make of the fact that they would do such a thing knowing what would happen to Palestinians in Gaza? I think you have to take two things into consideration. The first is a 16-year siege and blockade of Gaza. That kind of intense, unremitting violence. Siege involves violence. Uh, the cutting off of food and water and things like that, which Israel has been doing periodically on and off for these 16 years, has produced uh, a population that is, in some respects, ready to support Hamas, ready to support any form of what they call resistance. Um, you have 2.4 million people, half of whom are children, and who have suffered through five wars since 2008. Uh, Ghassan Awasita, a friend of mine, has been there for three of those wars. And the number of people killed are in the thousands, most of whom are women and children, most of whom are civilians. You do that to people and you, you, you inflict that kind of violence on people over that period of time, and you must expect a violent response. Now, why they did what they did uh, in a situation where, as I think you mentioned, they, are, they were not entirely popular in the Gaza Strip before this operation, um, I think has to do with a number of things. They have seen the Palestine question pushed to the sidelines. I'm not particularly happy about what I've much of what I've seen. I think some of it is horrific, but they have certainly pushed the Palestine question back uh, into the middle of things. Are Arab countries going to be able to normalize in the same way that they were blithely able to do uh, uh, before Saturday? I'm not sure that's going to be possible. Uh, is is anybody going to be able to ignore Hamas? Israel will go in, will kill many, many more people than have already died. The number of Palestinian deaths is about to go above the number, the very high, horrific number of Israeli deaths. Um, what Arab country is going to normalize? Egypt and Jordan, as your previous guest said, have resisted the idea of taking Palestinians. They are not going to accept further ethnic cleansing of Palestine at their expense. We should remember the people in Gaza are the descendants of people who were ethnically cleansed from the areas of southern Israel, which were the scenes of all this fighting. And Israel has refused to allow them to return for 75 years. Let, let me ask you this, because, you know, I think that that background is important to sort of have when people say, well, why would the people in Gaza elect um, Hamas in the first place. So they were elected in 20, 2006. They've existed since 1987. They took control right. of Gaza at the same time as Fatah, which is the other the sort of more moderate sort of Palestinian organization controls the West Bank uh, area. Right. What is the background to them actually getting elected in the first place? Well, two things are really interesting. First of all, they did get elected and they did so by accepting all kinds of provisions of the Oslo Accords. They said they would allow Abu Mazen, who was at that, almost at that time elected president, to negotiate on their behalf. Nobody took that up. To a certain extent, the refusal of the United States to actually end Israeli occupation, not to talk about a process which will lead to negotiations for. We've been talking about that since 1991. I was at Madrid 
We were told that this was a peace process. This was not a peace process. This was a process in which professionals made careers. There is no peace. We just saw that. We all saw all those civilians who died in Israel, and we're going to see many more civilians die in Gaza. If the United States and the international community had actually acted in 2006 when the Palestinians had an election to actually bring about peace, meaning end occupation, create a Palestinian state, allow refugees to return, we would not have anything that has happened since us. the five wars on Gaza, some of the horrible attacks on civilians. I have to say, though, the number of Palestinian civilians who are killed is always more than the number of Israeli civilians. It is about to go higher, unfortunately, as this offensive is unleashed on Gaza. Uh, Rashid Khalidi, thank you very much. I think it's so important to get the background and understand sort of where all of this is coming from. Thank you very much for providing that context. Thank you. Cheers. Uh, we'll be right back. Before we go, be sure to check out the readout blog. Jahan Jones takes Republicans like Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene to task for changing their tune on aiding foreign wars. The duo backed a Ukraine fatigue resolution earlier this year, saying Americans shouldn't spend money on foreign wars. But they're singing a very different tune when it comes to Israel. And Jahan explains why. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.